We are unfaithful, and yet he remains faithful still. And he did not come into the world to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Of course, there are no righteous apart from Jesus Christ making us righteous. But we need that perspective of being broken, sinful, needy, and disloyally unfaithful to God, and yet God says, I want to redeem you to myself. Incredible thoughts, right? Incredible truths for us today. In the year 1855, in the autumn, missionary Hudson Taylor, who had trained and spent many years in the UK preparing for his ministry opportunity, found himself now in China, in his beloved country. He was burdened for the people there, and deciding in his earnestness to reach the people in the inland with the gospel message that, that he was going to take on a little bit more radical approach, at least it would have seemed radical in that day and time for people that were doing missionary work, rather than living in the missionary compound with all the other European uh, people that were there ministering to the Chinese people in Shanghai and continuing to wear European clothes. This is a picture of the youthful Hudson Taylor. He decided to live right among the Chinese people and to adopt their, their native dress. Uh, he went into town and found the barber who shaved his head completely except for uh, the hair that could be braided into that Chinese, I think you pronounce it, Q or something like that. And he even took tea and used it to stain his skin to be a, a little less Caucasian looking, that he might just identify with the people of that day. And while Taylor took these steps to adapt with the culture, this is not what the birth of Christ is about. I use this as a contrast because sometimes people think, well, Jesus is God and he came to earth, he came to the world so that God could identify with us. And we do know that there is no temptation taken in, but such as is common to man, God is faithful. We understand that, uh, that Jesus was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. We do not have a high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. When we go through trials, when we go through temptations, things are alluring us. There is a comfort that we realize Jesus, the God-man, he, he can't identify. He, he went through, he has gone through what I deal with as a human being, yet in a sinless way, we understand that. The problem is so much of the world wants to just think, well, it's, it's good that, that God could adapt to me, and that's why he came to set a great example for humanity. And they stop there. And that's really a byproduct. That's a very secondary 
point of why Christ came. And if we miss the main point, then we're, we're missing it altogether. We refer to the birth of Christ, this act of God taking on human flesh as the incarnation. The incarnation. That's a good word for you to be familiar with if that is a, a new or lesser familiar word. Beautiful in that God, deity, he that is spirit in nature, takes on human flesh. Don't, in your mind, imagine that Jesus was 50% God and 50% man. That's, that is heretical, we would say. Jesus never stopped being 100% God. And he was no less 100% man, minus the fallenness of a sin nature. He was fully human. And that is what happened with the coming of Christ. Deity took on flesh. And we need to understand that the incarnation was absolutely necessary for something else. Another good word. It's called the atonement. God made everything at the beginning so that it was good. Genesis 1. And yet there is the fall, and things are not so good. In fact, things are horrible. But one of the things that happens at the fall, when man sins, is the estrangement between man and God. God had not made it that way in the beginning. God made a, a, a wonderful, compatible relationship, enjoyment. But now that was broken and marred. But God, even at that moment in Genesis 3.15, gave a promise that there would be one that would come, the seed of the woman, who would bruise the head of the serpent, representative of Satan himself. And, of course, that happens through Christ. And Christ accomplishes that on the cross. It's confirmed in his resurrection. But Christ couldn't die on the cross as the God-man unless he first came in the incarnation. And so that's why it's important for us to stop and think about the beauty of this phrase that Brother Watson read for us this morning in John 1.14, and the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. Now, when did that happen? You might say, well, that happens in the manger. That happens when gentle Mary lays her little child there. She she goes through the labor, and there's the cries that are heard, and out comes the Christ child. But officially, God became flesh when the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and conceived in her. Mary's unborn child was not just a fetus. He was the Son of God in her womb. Jesus was incarnate for nine months before he ever made it to the manger. Mary carried deity in her womb. Think about that. Conception is when the real miracle took place. However, the birth of Jesus is rightly heralded as the grand arrival of Christ. For now, Mary and Joseph, shepherds, wise men, people in the community 
are now able to properly adore Him and respond to Him. Prior to that, the only human response to the Christ child in the womb of Mary was, of course, John the Baptist when Mary and Elizabeth meet up as pregnant women and there's that leaping in the womb. I love that, that instance there, that as the, the forerunner of Christ, even in the womb, right? And boy, we could just have a, a very uh, pro-life message here, but that's not really the point of, of what we're saying here. Although it's all over the story of Christ coming into the world. But just in this one verse of John 1.14, I find some very profound truths that give us what we often refer to as the Christmas message, the Christmas story. We often turn to Matthew, we often turn to Luke 2, read passages from there. We often don't think of John 1 as a Christmas text, but it certainly is. As Brother Watson read, He was in the world, and the world was made by Him, and the world knew Him not in that adulthood ministry. He's moving around, meeting multitudes of people, ironically, who had been looking for the Messiah. And now He is here, and they're missing Him because they reject the nature of the true Messiah. They had concocted in their own minds what they wanted a Messiah to be like. Ironically also, he came into his own and his own received him not. And yet though there's that rejection, we have this wonderful truth that reception of Christ, receiving of Christ, is what it's all about. You say, boy, I wish I could have been there in the first century when Christ was walking around, ministering, healing the lame, making the blind to see, turning water into wine. You know, I wish I had had a chance to receive Him. Well, guess what? The good news is you can receive Him today if you've not yet. Receiving Him the most important way. It's not about receiving Him into your home and giving Him a meal, giving Him a place to stay for the night with His disciples. It's about welcoming Him into your life and into your heart for who He really is, the King of glory. And that's why it says, as many as received Him, to them gave He the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. If you'll truly believe in who Christ is, and why He came, and what He did for you, that you're a sinner, and you need your sins forgiven, that is the gospel, my friend. And by receiving that in your heart, truly believing, and putting all your dependence, your reliance on His sacrifice in your behalf, then you will be made a son of God. Son of God. Imagine that. And you're not born of blood and flesh, but you're born of God, it tells us. But for that to happen, the Word had to be made flesh, verse 14. So what are some truths that God would have us to learn from this verse? Number one, God wants you to learn to elevate His Word in your life. The Word of God. Is it not interesting that the title used for God in becoming man is capital W-O-R-D? There's a lot of names for Jesus, right? Jesus is one. Emmanuel, 
Christ. He's the wonderful counselor, mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the everlasting Father. On we could go with the different names, Alpha, Omega, all of them appropriate ways of referring to Christ. But here, John chooses the word, word. In the Greek, you would hear it pronounced logos, logos. And what is the significance of that? Well, in human form, he can be handled. Jesus could be bumped up against in his earthly ministry. Mary could hold him. But the word is something that is heard. Something that is heard. Humanity is tangible and physical where language is more mental, more conceptual. Humanity knew Jesus as the Logos long before He took on human flesh. If you flip back in your Bibles, it says in John 1, 1, in the what? In the beginning was the Word. At the outset, before there was anything but God Himself, there was the Word. And All things were made by Him, verse 3 tells us. We know who this Word is because verses 6 and 7 say, there was this man John who came to be a witness for Him, to bear witness of Him. And then down in verse 15, beyond where we read, we know that He's talking about Christ because the gospel is packed with those scenarios where John points to Jesus of Nazareth and says, Behold, the Lamb which takes away the sin of the world. And yet, Jesus as the Logos, as the Son of God, existed from eternity past. The Son of God did not come into existence on the eve of Christmas, if you would put it that way. And yet the Word is so important. The concept of Jesus being referred to as Word. We hold in our laps, most of us today, Bibles. We call it the Word of God. It's Scripture. It's the inscribed words of God that have been preserved down, inspired by God and preserved for us so that we hold in our hands and are able to take in that which God has revealed for us to understand about Himself. How important is the Word of God? Well, let me ask you this. How important is the name of God? God has cautioned that it's a sin to take His name even in vain, isn't it? Don't trivialize my name. And yet, in Psalm 138, verse 2, the psalmist says, Thou hast magnified Thy Word... Above all thy name. Now, that's not to say his name is not important, but it does go to show us how incredibly important the Word of God is for us. Jesus, as the Son of God, as the Word of God, has always been, which is why he's described in Galatians 4 4 in this way. When the fullness of the time, talking about on planet Earth, was come, 
God sent forth His Son. Well, how could God the Father send His Son if His Son wasn't already in existence? The Son was in heaven. The Son has always been. God sent forth His Son, and in the incarnation, this conception that we understand, He was made of a woman there. God was not made, but but Jesus was formed made of a woman, and made under the law, put in position where he would then live as a human being under the same guidelines that God has given to all humanity. It's no wonder that Jesus is described as the Word, since God has revealed Himself primarily through language rather than visualization. God could choose to do anything any way He wants. We understand that. But do you ever stop and wonder you know, why God chooses certain approaches than others? And we have to be careful about speculating where the Word of God doesn't give us clear descriptions and explanations of things. But we do know this, is that God has put cautions about visualizations of deity So much that in the Decalogue, we call it the Ten Commandments, he says, you shall not make unto you any, what? Graven images. And you only to ask why was that so important that he would have to make a statement like that. All you have to do is look at the places where people, humanity, made graven images to see how off the rails things got, right? I mean, just there at Mount Sinai, while that command is being given up top, the people are down below doing precisely that, making that golden calf and saying, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. And the worship is debaucherized, immoral, When Moses is coming down, he and Joshua are questioning what they're even hearing. Is it war going off? Is that what's happening? No, I realize it was a a very perverted worship service that was going on down there. And so this very day, man craves to, to somehow visualize God, put God in the form of a statue, And yet it's so easy then to make God what we want God to be. To imagine Him to behave the way we want Him to behave. Therefore, making us gods over those gods. And so God very wisely gives us His truth in language, in written form, in word. The becoming of a believer happens because of the Word of God. You really can't be saved apart from the written Word of God. You may not have to have a bound copy of a Bible, but you need the truth out of the Bible to be saved. James 1.18, it says that for believers of His own will begot He us with what? The word of truth. This begetting is that new birth. 
When we believe and we become the sons of God because He gives us that power, as John 1 tells us. James is echoing that. But you have to have this word of truth in order to be begotten into the family of God. Paul echoed this thought of the importance of the word of God, the language of Scripture. In Romans 10, 17, when he said, well, you need faith to be saved, but faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? By the Word of God. Somehow you've got to get that truth into your mind. You have to be able to understand what your problem is as a sinner and what God's plan is as far as redemption is concerned. And there has to be that accepting of that that transforms your life. It doesn't just stop at the moment that we're saved. As we get saved and we become children of God, we grow in the Lord. Praise the Lord. Well, how does that happen? That is equally vested into the Scriptures. James, or John 17, 17, Jesus is praying what we sometimes refer to as that great high priestly prayer. He's praying for His followers, not just those that were with Him at that exact moment, but for also those that would come after, such as us. And one little phrase in there, he says, sanctify them. He's saying to the Father, set them apart in a special way. Sanctify them through thy truth. What is truth? Thy word is truth. On we could go. So many scriptures. All to point out that God wants us clearly to elevate his revealed word in our lives. It's what brings us to salvation in Jesus Christ. It is what grows us in sanctification in Jesus Christ. And so, no accident that God very particularly directs in inspiration for John the Apostle to describe Jesus. The, the rabbi that John the Apostle walked with and ministered with, he now refers to him later in his life as God directs, as the Word. God wants us to also do that today as we think about this Christmas season. Secondly, the Word becoming flesh reminds us that God wants you and I to receive His unique communion. Remember it says, and the Word was made flesh and, second part, dwelt among us. God is with us phenomenal thought. There, there's a sense we refer to God being high and lifted up, and we use a word transcendence. It gives that proper reverence to God. We don't ever want to trivialize God in ways that I sometimes and grievously hear people say, the man upstairs. Now, maybe many of them, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt, they're saying it in a little bit of an ignorance. And maybe they're trying to create a camaraderie in thinking that way. But in my conscience, I could never refer to my heavenly, holy Father in that kind of way. Because God is high and lifted up and holy. Just remember Isaiah, what he sees there, the year that King Uzziah died. And that, that scene there, and the angels are Holy, holy, holy in Isaiah's response. Oh, I'm a man of unclean lips. That's how we ought to feel as we, we look into the Word of God and we get a fresh glimpse of who He is. 
and His grandness. We ought to say, oh, I am so unworthy. We ought to be as John the Baptist. Oh, he's got to increase. I just need to continue to decrease. And yet it says God is with us. Is it not a marvel today that God would choose to dwell among those He has created? Especially now that we're ugly and marred by sin. There are certain places that I don't prefer to be around because the, the elements can be a little bit repulsive. One place is we, we don't have trash pickup service at our home in our neighborhood. We have a nearby recycling center that most everybody affectionately refers to as the dump. Because you go and you dump your stuff there. And they have recycling areas where you're supposed to sort stuff, take this here, take that there. The one place I dread going to is the, what they call the commingle area, where you put all your plastics and glass, and especially in the summertime. Because as I walk up to that open area to dump those, my areas in, I take and kind of hold my breath and hope there's not someone waiting in line ahead of me, you know, because wafting out of that orifice is the nauseating smell of liquor from bottles that have been culturing in there or whatever they're doing and just makes me very sick to my, my stomach. I would never say to my wife, you know, it's, it's been a while since I've been over to the recycling center. I just miss that place and you know, just want to go hang out. And, and we see the irony in that, don't we? We can never begin to understand how the holy eyes of God must have a revulsion for the sin that is infested in every one of us as human beings. And then to realize that Jesus not only came and dwelt among us, but the Bible says He became sin for us. Who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Incredible, folks. Absolutely incredible. Isaiah seven fourteen. Pastor Brian did a wonderful job unpacking this verse for us Wednesday. The prophecy was given that the Lord Himself would give a sign. Behold, a virgin, not just a young woman, a woman who had not been with man. She would miraculously conceive and bear a son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. By the way, that's fulfilled in Matthew 1, 23, when they're so, they call him Jesus, Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. Three powerful words. Two, two words that couldn't be more different, God and us. And that amazing preposition with that is put there that, that unites them in a way that we can't even begin to fathom. Because we have no problem with God coming to us because we're, we so minimize our sin problem. 
And yet, God chose to come be with us. Now you say, I thought God was omnipresent. I thought God was everywhere all the time. God has always been. He's eternal. So hasn't God always been with man, even though we can't see Him? And in that way, we would have to say absolutely. However, there is a difference of what's being talked about when it says God with us here. This great truth of God being with us is not just about His living like one of us, which He did. This opens the door for man-God reconciliation. For the relationship to be able to exist once again. This is about God being made with us in relationship. Relationship and not just proximity. I mean, in a manner of speaking, you could go into one of the most sinful, wicked locations that we could find in our community. And in a, in a sense, because God is omnipresent, He's there, and he is, he is witnessing that wickedness that takes place there. There's no place you can go to get away from God. Judas, for instance, notorious Judas was one of the disciples. He was with the disciples. There's no question about that. In the sense that he was numbered among them. In fact, he had a pretty highly trusted office as the bearer of the bag. He was really the treasurer of the group. And yet in John 17, 12, Jesus himself calls him the son of perdition, a title that's only also given to the Antichrist to come. Pretty nefarious title, right? And yet he's in the group. He's with them. And yet Judas went out from them because he had never truly been of them. As 1 John 2, 19 begins to discriminate between those two kinds of people. There are those people that are with us, but they go out from us. And why do they go out from us? Because they no doubt had never been of us. And so, we want to talk about the occupation of God with us in a relationship way. No man fully enjoys God being with us until that man has been reconciled to God through the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, you may be here today and not know Christ as your Savior, and you might be enjoying the music. It's been great. might enjoy the singing. might enjoy the lovely decorations. might enjoy even the community of believers that are very friendly and congenial. I mean, it's a great place to be. But that doesn't mean that you're with God. Only Christ can resolve that alienation that exists. Say, am I alienated from God? Yes, from birth. Born a sinner, and yet through Jesus' sacrifice, you that were sometimes afar off can be made nigh by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus came to us and ministered among us so that He might be truly with us. That's what Christmas is about. He came to us. Conceived in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit. Came forth the night of her labor. Grew 
ministered, died on the cross as the Lamb of God, rose again victoriously three days, just as was predicted. And why did He do all that? So that both now and for all eternity, we can enjoy that union that is only possible with Christ. Thirdly, another great truth from this passage is that God wants you to be enthralled with His perfections. John was with Jesus when he was transfigured before them. John, the apostle, the writer of this particular book. There's that wonderful account in Matthew 17 where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, those three men that often were sometimes referred to as the inner circle. They go up into the high mountain. The Bible says Jesus is transfigured before them. The Greek word there is where we get our word metamorphosis, this amazing change. Matthew describes this, this glowingness about Christ, that His face beams brilliantly. His, his clothes that He was wearing begin to, to just beam with a brilliance about them. Can you imagine, in a day and age before there was Anything about special effects with computers, what this must have done to the minds of these three men. To see this, right? To see this. Here was their respected rabbi. He's now beaming in countenance and body. John 12. Jesus may be thinking about his glory, and maybe the apostles and the disciples thought, well, that was the glory of Jesus. But you know, there's a, yet another moment where the glory of God will be almost camouflaged by most of humanity. They won't see it. It'll be a bit murky. And yet Jesus himself identifies this moment of glory. In John 12, 23, Jesus answered them saying, the hour is come. What hour? Well, he's getting ready to walk into the, the Passion Week here. The hour has come that the Son of God should be, Son of Man should be glorified. And so it is not on the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus' glory is most manifested, but is instead on the cross of Calvary. In John 1.14, where we read today, it's not only said that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and it says, we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, but then it qualifies it with these two words, full of grace and truth. And where is there a clearer perspective of God's grace and truth than as Jesus offers Himself on the cross? In those final moments on the cross, he cries out, it is finished. He never said that before. He never said that afterwards. There's a pivotal moment, a watershed moment. The truth of our redemption is being proclaimed by the Savior himself as he hangs there. The Lamb who had been slain since the foundation of the world had now been offered in the fullness of time. We need to understand that. Though, though Jesus is dying on the cross there, 
in the mind and in the work of the eternal Father, he is able to say, but my son was actually slain from the beginning of time. That's why someone like Job, who is so early on in our Old Testament, is able to say, I know my Redeemer liveth, present tense, and future tense, that he shall stand on the earth in the latter day. Wow, what profound doctrine Job was talking about in the midst of his suffering, right? And he was looking, though he didn't know Jesus of Nazareth, he didn't know about Bethlehem, he didn't know about shepherds, he didn't know about Herod, he knew that there was a promised Messiah to save him from his sin. And believing in him, he became a son of God himself. Hebrews 10.14 tells us that for by one offering, He, being Jesus, hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. For generations, for centuries, animals had been sacrificed, lambs had been killed, oxen had been killed. The temple and the tabernacle was, a, was filled with the blood of these animals that only typified the coming of the perfect sacrifice. Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats could in no wise take away sin. But Jesus, once and for all, offers a perfect sacrifice. It is on Him you must rely. It is on Jesus you must trust. You see, grace and truth are never better understood than when we look at the birth of Christ first. That's what it's talking about here. Full of grace and truth. What is grace? Some have said, well, grace is unmerited favor. I certainly didn't deserve God sending His Son. And consider the outpouring of favor when God becomes flesh. Not because we deserve it, but because God is redeeming that which is made in His own image. Truth is what? Truth is the way God thinks, is a simple way of putting it. God is truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. If you want to know what truth is, look to God. Look to His Word. Unfortunately, truth is so easily distorted by human touch. It can be skewed, misguided, misrepresented. And any of those things cause truth to no longer be truth. Truth is very absolute. And yet, according to what John is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is, these two things, grace and truth, are merged in the person of Jesus Christ. In a full way, in a perfect way. He doesn't come up short in any way. You want to see what grace is all about? Look at Jesus. You want to know what truth is all about? Look at Jesus. We said grace is about what God gives. Well, Jesus, God gave us His only begotten Son. And truth is about what God reveals. And again, it comes back to the idea of Jesus being described as the Word. You see, Jesus in bodily form is no longer present on earth. You're not going to accidentally bump into them at the local Walmart. You're not going to catch the evening news and, hey, you know, Jesus was seen in the streets of Jerusalem yesterday. 
We know that He ascended up into heaven, and the angel even explained that when He does come back, how we're going to see Him in like manner. And while He is not here in a physical sense that we can sit down with Him and enjoy a breakfast of fish like His disciples could, we could not go to an upper room and enjoy communion with Him as His disciples did. We are no less able to still partake in the presence of Jesus Christ. How do we communicate Jesus to those who do not possess Him already? Say, well, I have Jesus. Paul says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus is in me, Christ in me. But lost people don't have Christ in them. How How do I get Christ from me to them, right? Well, we're ambassadors. But primarily, it's the Word. It's the Word. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And guess what? We still have Christ in Word. And so, friend, if you're today and you don't know Him in relationship, you've not received Him as the Bible commands that you must to become a son of God, Hear, hear the Word of God. Hear the revelation of the Father. Put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your Redeemer. Know that you're a sinner and that He can wash away your sin. Wow, what a wonderful day to come to Christ, a day that we celebrate His birth, His incarnation. You say, how did I do that? You have only just to, in your heart and mind, Admit that you're a sinner, that you have failed, that you are flawed, and that those sinful failings and flaws are part of your choice, and that Jesus is the only answer to wash away those sins, to forgive you, and He will. It's not about your good deeds, it's not about your merit, not about your efforts. It's about complete faith and trust in Him as your Redeemer. Brother and sister in Christ, if you know the Lord today, rejoice in the Word made flesh. Rejoice that though He is in heaven, He is also in you, spiritually speaking. Thank you that though we have the earnest down payment of the Holy Spirit with us right now, the rest is yet to come, as we will someday. That's why we can have somber moments as a brother or sister in Christ passes on in a funeral and yet rejoice and celebrate knowing that they are on the threshold of being made whole in the presence of the Savior and we have the hope of being reunited with them someday too. I meet so many kind people, so many friendly people that know about Jesus know about church, know about the Bible, would say, I believe, I don't have a problem with God, I believe in God. And yet, they have not yet come to that place of humility to receive Christ as their Savior. What a shame. What a cry I give to you is to in faith believe the gospel, believe what God has said. Don't call Him a liar. Believe that you must put your faith in Christ. And call upon Him. And He will give you the power. Say, I don't know how to be saved. God will give you the power.
Just believe His Word. That's what Christmas is all about. A relationship with the Word of God, the Son of God, for all eternity. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the Word in Your Son. Thank You for the revelation that connects us daily in fellowship with the Word that is within us. And Lord, thank You for the homegoing that we can experience someday to be with the incarnate Word in heaven. And so, Lord, I pray that we would, as we enjoy family and food and friends and festivities, Lord, may none of these things eclipse or even challenge the primacy of Jesus Christ. Thank You for the plan of salvation. Thank You for accomplishing redemption. Lord, I pray that today, if any do not know Christ as their Savior, that even at this exact moment, they will open their hearts to receive Jesus as their Savior. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. When you receive Christ as your Savior, He gives an amazing peace that passes understanding. A friend, if you're here today or you're listening by live stream or you're listening by podcast later, let me just say, if you've heard this message that I've tried to deliver as carefully as I can from God's Word just to expose God's truth, and you realize that is where I'm deficient, that is where I lack, I can't say with absolute certainty I am a son of God. I am a child of God. Then, friend, it's so uncomplicated that even a small child can do it. Believe. It's a command. Obey God's command. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You shall be saved. God promises it. Stop relying in your own wholesomeness, your own goodness, your own kindness, your own morality. It's flawed. There's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. You're flawed. Admit it. Jesus is here to give you His complete righteousness. Isn't that amazing? Receive Him today. 